0: I ended up having to have all of my shares, not just the IPO shares, but the initial shares, which were collateralized, all taken up, sold off by the bank. And I ended up with a seven-digit net cash loss.
1: Hello, fellow risk takers, and welcome to my worst investment ever. Stories of loss to keep you winning. In our community, we know that to win in investing, you must take risks. But to win big, you've got to reduce it. My name is Andrew Stotts from A. Stotts Investment Research, and I'm here with featured guests, Azran, Osman, Rani. Azran, are you ready to rock? You bet. Let's do it. <laughs> All right. Let me tell the audience a little bit about you because it's pretty darn impressive. Azran is currently the founding CEO of Naluri, a digital health technology company that provides a cost-effective and accessible digital health psychology service to help users adopt healthier lifestyle behavior changes. And my God, we all need that. He is active in the internet technology space as a co-founder, investor, and advisor to Iflix, MoneyMatch, Cognifix, and Yellow Porter. He was previously the CEO of Iflix in Malaysia and its Group COO, a disruptive internet television video on-demand service that was launched in Kuala Lumpur in May 2015 and now operates across over 30 markets across Asia, Middle East and Africa with 700 employees in less than 3 years from launch. Previously Azran pioneered the long haul low cost airline model as the founding CEO of AirAsia X. He led the growth from startup to 1 billion in revenue, 2500 employees and a public listing in 6 years breaking many low cost airline industry conventions, and introducing innovations along the way. My God, that's pretty impressive. (laughs) Azran, take a minute and fill in any further tidbits about your life.
0: Well, that's sort of the nice marketing spin, but that journey was not without many, many mistakes and disasters and global financial crisis
1: and losing all my hair in the process. So a lot of color to that. Yes. And for those that are listening, you can't see the video, but we have the same hairstyle. (laughs) All right. Well, now it's time to share your worst investment ever. And since no one goes into their worst investment thinking it will be, of course, we all think it's going to be a winner. It's time to tell us about the circumstances leading up to it and then tell us your story.
0: Sure. Well, my worst financial investment ever, Andrew, was certainly my Best learning and development experience, and that was none other than the capital that I invested to start AirAsia X. So, when the shareholders who founded AirAsia X, they were the founders of the AirAsia group. They wanted to create a new airline. Interestingly, because AirAsia themselves refused to do long haul flights, they did not believe in the viability of it, and so a separate company had to be set up. And because no one in the airline industry believed that it was possible. Tony Fernandez, the founder, had to find someone outside the industry who is gullible enough not to know that you cannot do this. Now, when Tony brought me in, he said, look, I don't believe in stock options. Stock options give management an upside if it's successful, but if it, things don't go well, you just walk away, right? And it's the shareholders who've got to take the brunt of any failure. I need you to be fully aligned with us shareholders. So how much money do you have in your savings, in your pension fund? Right. Not enough. Put all of it in. Plus, we're going to arrange a bank loan for you to take a loan and buy equity so that if this thing goes south, you will feel the same pain as we did. Now, that basically meant I had, in percentage terms of my net worth, a much, much bigger chunk than Tony and the other shareholders. They obviously had a bigger amount in magnitude, but as a percentage of my small net worth, this was a big bit. And certainly that I believe in that principle where if you're going to start a business, you have to have skin in the game because in that journey from that startup to an IPO six years later, there were many, many times where we were running on fumes, where it was on the brink of collapse, right? Because we got, we had to go through the 2008, 2009 global financial crisis, banks deserted us, governments were against us, no more money left to keep going. And... It's sometimes that moment of desperation when you've got your entire equity stuck in it, you're forced to be creative and survive because you just cannot walk away. So, in that sense, I'm a big believer in that process, having gone through that painful journey myself. Now, ultimately, we did IPO. It became the first long haul, low cost airline, a model that the industry believed was not possible to achieve a public listing. And that's important because now institutional investors validate that this is a viable model. They're investing their capital into it, not just some crazy initial shareholders. And financially, at the point of IPO, for those of us who put in money at par value at the start, it was an over 6x return. So in that sense, very, very happy, very exciting. Now, because you can get very carried away with an IPO process and you're the CEO, there was... In an IPO in Malaysia, they give you pink forms, right? So it's special allocation. And you want to show that you're deeply committed to this. And the investment bank somehow convinced me to double my stake using my first set of shares as collateral for another loan to buy an equal size chunk of shares at IPO, right? So the IPO value to again show investors, look, I'm also coming in at the IPO entry price as every other investor. Right? So you really believe in it. That meant now carrying a lot of debt, right? What we didn't count on was we had used the IPO proceed to effectively to bet the farm. We created an airline model that no one thought possible, but now we attracted new entrants. So there was Scoot from Singapore who joined the low-cost long-haul fray, Cebu Pacific from Philippines, Jetstar, and we learned from AirAsia that you've got to be double the size of your next largest competitor. So we bet the 300 million US dollars that were the IPO proceeds to double our fleet. And specifically in 2014, that was a 50% capacity increase over 2013. That's massive. And under normal circumstances, you take a bit of a short-term loss for, the, for demand to catch up to the new capacity, but you dominate the market. What we did not count on was not one, not two, but three black swan events in our sector, namely MH370, MH17, and QZ8501, three airline disasters. And principally, the biggest markets that were affected were China and Australia. And I had led pre-IPO a strategy to consolidate our position where almost 70% of our business came from these two markets. And so we took a bloodbath as far as tourist arrivals crashing by over 20%, right? Um, at a time when capacity had gone up by 50%. So the share price kept going south and south and south. The bank who provided the loans for the shares started doing margin calls. And then... As a CEO, you don't want to be seen to be selling your shares, right? And so you put in even more cash in from your savings to kind of protect your shareholding. In the end, though, I ended up having to have all of my shares, not just the IPO shares, but the initial shares, which were collateralized, all taken up, sold off by the bank. And I ended up with a seven-digit net cash loss. Not paper loss. The paper loss was multiple times of that, but a net cash loss from that process and eventually having to part company with the board in that journey, right? So very, very tough and painful financial ending, a public sort of separation with the board, which was also equally challenging and a lot of pressure for the family. But, you know, I learned an invaluable amount uh, from that experience. Wouldn't have traded it for anything else.
1: So if we, let's just take the lessons and let's list out a couple of the lessons for the person who's being encouraged by a founder such as a powerful person, a commanding personality such as Tony Fernandez, or that's being courted by investment banks that are saying, hey, leverage things up and you know show that you're going to put more behind it you know, these people have a lot of influence. And when you're a CEO and you're don't, let's just say that person, that CEO doesn't have a lot of experience in the financial world and they get the advice from these guys, they think, well, this is what everybody does and this is what I should do. I'm just curious, you know, thinking about those different contexts of what you've explained, um, what lessons did you learn?
0: Well, the first clear lesson is be very what investment bankers tell you. Ben, before I get to my specific deal, I have another little anecdote that's interesting. 2008, if you recall, right, was not just the global financial crisis, but it's a double whammy for airlines because not only did the banks run away and credit dried up, but we had the worst oil price volatility. Oil was around hovering around $60 to $80 per barrel for several years, right? And suddenly, from about $80 a barrel in January of 2008, do you know what it was by July of 2008, six months later? $147 per barrel at peak. That's crazy. Right. Now, as oil prices keep going up, what do you do? What do oral airlines do, right? What do the banks tell them to do? Hedge, buy a fuel hedge, and that's what all the investors expect you to do. Take out the risk, so-called take out the volatility. Well, turns out what you do, you follow, you say, okay, well, I want to fix contract for the next 12 months to protect this volatility. And if oil was at $90 a barrel, the bank says, great, you can lock it in for $100 a barrel because they make a slight margin up front, right? And then it went up to 100, 110, 120, 130, 140. I started to make a lot of profits from it. I thought as a 36-year-old first-time CEO, I'm a hero. I could have just ground my plane. I don't need to do anything. This one piece of paper generates so much more profit than why go through the trouble of operating a, a plane. Well, from $147 a barrel in July, guess where it was in December of 2008, less than six months later? $32 a barrel. At that amount, right, the bank who was the counterparty to our fuel hedge, would have been able to claim more than four times our entire capital, wiping us out completely from that. And there was only one reason why X survived, and it's a very important business principle called SDL. Do they teach you SDL in your business school? SDL. Yes, it stands for sheer dumb luck. (laughs) Because as it turns out, Of the hundreds of banks that we could have entered into this contract, this fuel hedging contract, the one bank that we did enter into was Lehman Brothers. And as you know, Lehman Brothers collapsed before that contract turned around, voiding that contract. So that's the thing with be very careful about what banks tell you. And interestingly... Even when we became a listed company, oil prices continued to be volatile and investors kept saying, how are you, what's your fuel hedging strategy, right? But the thing we have to realize is fuel hedging doesn't take away risk. It gives you a comfort because you know, you're checking the box, right? And so what I've learned is to not rely on fuel hedging because no airline ever makes a sustainable competitive advantage. Like uh, the roulette wheel, the house always wins. The bank is the market maker. They always make a spread over the long term. And so the best solution is to be the world's most fuel efficient airline to burn the least amount of fuel to carry one passenger so that at any fuel price, you always have a sustainable advantage over your competitors. So lesson number one, D, we're very wary about banks and investment mm-hmm. banks coming up with all of these
1: solutions. Okay, so let me uh, summarize my takeaways from this. There's a few things that really scream out. And the first thing is that when we think about risk in the context of finance, really and really in business, of course you have business risks like you know, that you are exposed to only one market that type of thing. So, you also have risks related to, you know, let's say you have a, only one type of product that you're selling, and let's say that area of the product dries up. So, obviously, we want to try to diversify the revenue streams that a company's getting, you know, and that helps to reduce risk. But when it comes to the real risks that I see from a financial perspective, is really it comes down to two things number one, debt, number two, currency. And Absolutely. And really, if you ran your business with no debt, you would reduce a huge amount of risk. Now your business couldn't be huge, you'd be constraining your growth, but I have a friend of mine here in Thailand that has a business that's worth maybe 600 million US, and he has zero debt, and he has 20% of his balance sheet in cash, and he'll never borrow money from the banks because he almost lost his company to the banks in the 97 crisis and he's decided to run his business with cash. So the first thing is that in both business and in life, because we've also heard it in your case, in life, and that is the damage of leverage. If you had not borrowed in any way, shape or form, and you had taken a portion of your wealth, mm-hmm. and use the principles of not getting into debt, and use a principle of diversification, meaning I'm no, sorry, you can have, want me to have skin in the game as much as you want, but I'm only going to take 30% of my personal assets to put into this and that's it. Right? So if you followed that principle, then, you know, you probably wouldn't have gotten the job, <laughs> That's it. <true. laughs> but you would have been low risk. But the point yes. is that you got to think about these things at that time. Now that's all about risk. The second thing is after having been an analyst all my life on the sell side and um, what I like to tell CEOs is never listen to financial people. <laughs> yes. First of all, these investment bankers and the analysts and all these, they'd never run a company. Yep. And so all they're doing is sitting on the sideline, eating popcorn, writing research and saying, oh, you should do this, you should do that. And there is zero skin in the game. And in fact, they're making money from getting you to do things that are you know, really kind of distracting in a lot of cases. That's right. I just saw a listing in Thailand and the stock went down a bit at IPO. And the the guy that owns the company and the CEO that's running it is saying, you know, we got a long-term plan. And I just wanted to write him a letter and say, that's right. Keep that long-term plan and don't let anybody bully you into feeling like we've got to do this, we've got to do that. Which brings me to my final, my third major point, and that is something that you really started to highlight at the end. And I like to always say to my finance students, finance adds no value. Mm. Let me repeat that. Finance adds no value. What do I mean by that? Well, basically, value is created through products and services and through, as you said, building, you know, one of the most fuel efficient operations in the world. What I like to say is that value is created on the asset side of the balance sheet with the assets of the business and the brains and the commitment and determination of the people. Better products and services is what creates value. Now, we can play around with you know saving some tax money and getting our weighted average cost of capital down and all this, but really, this is just a margin. What I like to say is that the job of a CFO of a company is to use finance as a supporting tool to management decisions. And I think if we remember this always, a CEO and a young CEO who's out there trying to build their business will not get lulled into thinking that financial Maneuvers is what's going to create long term value. So, those are my three main takeaways. Is there anything you'd add to that?
0: Well, you know, for me, I think one of the things I learned from that process, though, is I still believe there could have been an alternative strategy to get AirAsia X out of the predicament that it was in as a result of the three airline disasters. Because, by the way, in addition to the three airline disasters the other thing that happened in 2014 was that all of our regional currencies went south against the US dollar right ringgit rupiah japanese yen aussie dollars and those were the revenues currencies that I earned my revenues in and 70% of our costs were in US dollars fuel aircraft maintenance etc and so that led to an even bigger pressure on the share price and a lot of concern from the board now What I felt was that there could have been an alternative strategy, right? Sometimes you've got to take very big and bold decisions, which was, in my case, I recommended to the board that we take as much as even 50% of our capacity that we had added in and take them out of our current core route network because when the capacity isn't there and the demand isn't, you have to dump your prices just to fill up your planes and you're flying at a loss for a lot of your flight. Instead, tactically deploy them to other markets in the form of short-term leases to other airlines who need tactical extra capacity, right? So European carriers want extra planes for summer charters to the Caribbean. North African airlines want extra planes for the Hajj and Umrah pilgrimage to Mecca. This would allow us to make albeit a small positive margin from the planes. The planes would be utilized and the leasing terms would be in US dollars, right? Again, reducing that currency mismatch. But it also means operationally complexity because you cannot just give your planes away on a short-term basis. You have to send your pilots, your flight attendants, and your engineers and technicians, which means they now have to live for, let's say, a year in all of these exotic places. So it's difficult, right? But it could, it could have been a solution. Now, one of my biggest failures was I failed to convince the board that that was a viable, radical strategy, right? And so they felt, no, let's still carry on the course. But sometimes I look back and I think there may have been a better way that we communicate these strategies or for example if you disagree on two fundamental paths, maybe there's one that says, okay, we can go with a path that say the board might want, but what are the signposts, right? That if, for example, things still don't get any better in three months' time, let's sort of change and move tack, right? Rather than Making it an either or A or B strategy, which is where it, it led to a sort of tense confrontation at the board level direction, right? Okay. And I look back and I see, you know what, I think Aerogex could have benefited from radical strategy, but my failure, I've set full responsibility for not communicating and, and winning over a board that became conservative. Because we did, you know, post IPO, you do experience new independent directors and audit committees and risk management committees and less of an appetite to do something radical and unproven, right? Unlike the first six years, pre-IPO, the directors were represented of the shareholders. We were taking risks and doing things that no other airline was doing.
1: Mm. What a lesson. Well, let's try to wrap this up by try to, this will be a little bit of a difficult, because there's a lot of different kind of decision points that you faced that mm-hmm. you've explained. But if you think about someone that's out there facing some of these similar decision points, What one action would you recommend our listeners take to avoid suffering the same fate?
0: Well, ultimately, I guess it's easy for me in hindsight to say we shouldn't have taken big positions, the whole bet the farm moves, right? Betting the entire $300 million of IPO proceeds on planes, right? We should have kept a reserve buffer. We shouldn't have used it all on a 50% annual capacity increase, right? So these are all nice things to learn in hindsight. I think generally in whatever crisis situation, I think there are always a plan B or a plan C, right? We can't just say this is the only way things go, but almost look at it as a portfolio of different alternatives and say, what can we do to tactically shift? Because the world that we live in today is so unpredictable. It's impossible to predetermine what is the right path. Right. But we got to go down one path because you can't indecision is probably the worst decision, but you gotta be able to get ready to pivot quicker. Right. And this is a philosophy that I think boards generally aren't comfortable with, right? The idea of pivoting midway that doesn't require quarterly board meetings to sanction any strategic shifts, because frankly that would be too late. So we've got to rethink how we govern organizations to allow faster
1: pivots. Well, there's a lot to digest in that, and I know uh, <laughs> there's a lot more to learn. So. But let's wrap up with the last question, which is what is your number one goal for the next 12 months?
0: Well, you know, for me, as with all of the ventures that, that I've built, right, it's how do we make real impact? And so I'm excited with Naluri and the big problem we're tackling, which is you know, we're the most unhealthy nation in Asia, Malaysia, with 65% of adults are obese and have chronic disease. And so we're running a number of clinical trials to see how digital interventions can help lead to healthier outcomes. So I really want to be able to you know, show that we can make a difference and therefore come up with a formula that allows us to scale to other markets. So that's my main and only focus for 2019.
1: Beautiful, beautiful. And it's a great focus. I know simple things in my life like Fitbit and other things like that provide a lot of data and feedback and the capacity is just growing on, you know, what we can provide for care. Right. And I look after my eighty year old mother who lives with me and I use she wears a Fitbit too. And we do measurements and I try to understand what's going on. And you can see that there's plenty of things that could be done remotely. So I'm really excited. And I know that the uh, audience will be watching as you continue to progress. Well, I'm going to wrap it up at that point and say, listeners, there you have it. Another story of loss to keep you winning. To find more stories like this, previous episodes and resources to help you reduce your risk, visit my worst investment ever. And as we wrap up, Azran, thank you again for coming on the show. I know it's painful talking about our losers, but our listeners are learning to win as a result. Do you have any parting words for the audience? No, I'm sure it's all about looking forward
0: and not looking back. There's a lot of that's ahead of us. So
1: all Amen. the best to everyone. Amen. Well, that's a wrap on another great story to help us create, grow, and most importantly, protect our wealth. Fellow risk takers, I'll see you on the upside.